Well, uh, don't be surprised if my movements seem a little bit tentative this morning or if I stay largely confined to my stool here. I am still recovering a little bit from a hernia, well, a double hernia surgery that I had done um, about a week ago. I still have some staples in and I'm not entirely comfortable at the moment, but... Um, I had this, uh, it's obviously not as big deal. Lots of people have hernia surgeries done. I had one done 10 years ago. Uh, and back then I decided that I would have it done at a clinic in Toronto that professes to be hernia experts and had real good experience there. But, but this time when I decided, you know, the other two needed to be done and, and, uh, I decided, I think I'm going to stay local and I decided to entrust my care uh, to a surgeon that we know here in the uh, city, Chris and I, who actually is a, a part of our community. Um, I know it's a little bit risky, uh, you know, to have a surgeon who's a part of the church do my surgery because it can get awkward. Like, what if something goes wrong and, and how, you know, there's, how do you manage the relationship afterwards? But we trust this guy. And, and besides, we figured, like, if, if something goes wrong and he you know, damages me physically. He just has to know that as his pastor, uh, something can go sideways here and I can damage him spiritually. So, you know, maybe even for all of eternity. So I figured, I figured he'd be extra careful uh, taking care of the person who dangles his eternity in his hands, you know. So, but uh, it was, we had a really great experience. But the thing that I really liked about it, about deciding to do it that way, is that there was something that seemed to just make sense about entrusting my care to someone who had entrusted themselves uh, to my care, entrusting myself to their care, given that they'd entrusted themselves to my care. That's kind of that give and take, that being in it with each other and for each other, that just seems to be how relationships work. All good relationships. I, I heard somebody say this week that a a good teacher is the one who learns the most from their students. That it's not a, a relationship of just expelling knowledge on other people. It's, it's a give and take where we learn from each other in community. And that's the way all of our best relationships work, seemingly, except for one. And that is in our culture, both in the church and outside the church, our relationship with people who don't have as much as us. Um, this entire series that we've called Hope Lives, a part of it has been motivated by this desire to cause us to think about what it would look like to move our relationships with the poor and those have, who have been marginalized by society, both locally and around the world, to move our relationships from a posture of charity to a posture of mutuality, from a posture of charity where the primary mentality is, well, I have something to give that you need, and so I give it to you, versus the posture of mutuality, which is we each have something that we need from each other, and we enter into a relationship where the goal is for each of us to share what we have with the other who has a need. And that's what Nate Dirks talked to us about uh, three weeks ago in the first week of this series. And, and I'm going to tell you, for the entire duration of this series, there's been a story from the New Testament that has been rumbling around in my head that I think 
captures this idea beautifully. It's a, it's a story about Jesus' friend Peter. And you can read the story in Acts chapter 10 and 11. I'm just going to tell it to you uh, this morning instead of read it. But in this story, Peter is at his friend's house. He's up early in the morning. He's praying uh, as a part of his daily you know, spiritual routine. And as a part of his prayer, all of a sudden he sees this vision where a blanket is being lowered down from heaven and opened up and contained within this blanket is all sorts of unkosher, non-kosher food, like all sorts of unclean animals that uh, observant Jews were not allowed to eat, you know, like, like pork, bacon, that kind of thing. Um, and, and this blanket's filled with all this non-kosher food and the, this voice from heaven says to Peter, kill and eat. Peter's horrified. As a devout and observant Jew, he says back to God in his vision, he says, I would never eat food that is unworthy. And God says back to Peter, never call anything unworthy that I have said is worthy. But Peter's still sort of processing this vision when all of a sudden there's a knock on the door. And he goes and he opens the door and there are three men standing there who are unclean Gentile men. Now as, as horrified as Peter would have been as an observant Jew to eat non-kosher unclean food, he would have been just as horrified and resistant to associate in relationship with Gentile unclean men. In fact, the Jewish law forbade it. But here are these guys knocking on the door and they say to Peter, listen, our boss is a guy named Cornelius and he's a Roman military officer. In other words, in a Jewish mindset, he's a part of the enemy. He is a, 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 a military officer who is a, a part of the invading occupying hordes who are now oppressing God's people in their own land if it could get any it couldn't get any worse and they say our boss is a guy named Cornelius and he sent us to find you because he says you have something important to tell him and Peter still has this voice of God rolling around in the back of his mind don't call anything unworthy that I have said is worthy and he agrees to go with the men. They arrive at Cornelius' house and he accepts Cornelius' hospitality, which was absolutely uh, unheard of for an observant Jew. They, it was an absolute no-no. But Peter says to them, listen, you know that it is against my religion as a devout and observant Jew to have any kind of relationship with unclean, unworthy people like you. But God, in a vision while I was praying, told me that not to call anybody unworthy. So what can I do for you? And Cornelius says to him, what an amazing coincidence. He says, in fact, I had a vision when I was praying yesterday. And he said, God spoke to me and said, Cornelius, go and get Peter. And he even gave me the address where you were staying. And he said, Peter has something important to tell you. And so I've sent for you. And he says, what is it that you have to tell me? And Peter is astonished. 
In fact, in that moment, inside of Peter, something fundamentally shifts. And this is his response in verse 34 of Acts 10. It says, then Peter began to speak. Now I realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the person who fears him and does what is right. Something inside Peter shifts and he realizes for the first time, his eyes are open to realize that he and Cornelius are more the same than they are different. That they're both devout, religious, observant people. Prayerful people who who listen for and hear the voice of God and then are eager to do what God has told them to do. People who are eager, it says, to do what is right. In fact, the text says that Cornelius was devout and God-fearing and generous towards the poor and prayerful. And all of a sudden in that moment, Peter realizes That he and Cornelius are actually more similar than they are different in their common devotion to God. And all of a sudden, the prejudice that Peter had grown up with, the prejudice that Peter had lived with for all of his life towards unclean Gentile people just sort of fades away. And he begins to see Cornelius not as an unworthy person with whom Peter should have nothing to do. He begins to see Cornelius as someone through whom God is capable of speaking. Peter shares the good news about Jesus with Cornelius, which is what Cornelius needed and what Peter had. But the primary lesson in the story is not about the way that God used Peter to speak to Cornelius. It was the way that God used the quote-unquote unworthy Cornelius to speak to Peter. And from that day forward, Peter changed. In his mind, the gospel had changed. The good news of Jesus was now for everybody and not just Jews, which meant that the church had to change. And they had to start telling people outside of Israel about Jesus and invite um, people who were not Jews into church leadership. And that meant that the trajectory of human history would change. And actually, if you're here this morning and you are not Jewish, it means that your relationship with Jesus changed. Not because of what God did through Peter in Cornelius, but what God did through Cornelius in Peter. That's the vision that we're trying to uh, begin to realize in our community. This idea that there aren't those who have something to give and those who have something to receive. But that God is at work in all of us, moving us from charity to mutuality so that we can all receive from each other what we need. The verses that Nate used to introduce the series were in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 14 and 15. It says this, at present time, your plenty will supply what they need so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it's written, the one who has much does not have too much. And the one who has little does not have too little. 
That's the goal, is that out of the plenty that God has given us, we would give to what other people need, but that we would equivalently learn to realize the depth of our need and allow the others to give to us out of their plenty, what we need. Because truth be told, I think our community over the last 15 years has grown immensely in our ability to give out of our plenty to what other people need. And this whole month, we've been highlighting our relationship with compassion. And over the course of the years, we, our church is now responsible around the world for seven different child survival programs that essentially um, ensure we, we send money to partner with local churches in seven different parts of the world so that they can ensure that, that mothers and children are surviving and thriving until the children are ready uh, for sponsorship. And our uh, seven Child survival programs means that our community is supporting around the world 100 moms and 100 babies, ensuring that they survive and that they thrive for sponsorship at every single moment of the day, which is a beautiful thing. In our community, we've been encouraging for a long time that people would sponsor children. And if they're already sponsoring a child, to sponsor more children. And over coming into this series, we had prayed as a team that that God would, through our community, lead us to sponsor 50 more kids during this Hope Lives series. Well, the last number that I heard was that in the last two weeks, our community sponsored not 50 kids, but 118 more children than we had been sponsoring previously, which is a remarkable thing. Bringing the total number of sponsorships in our community somewhere in the ballpark of 550 or 600 children being lifted out of poverty in Jesus' name by the people in our community, which is, I mean, unbelievable. And it's not just what God is doing in other places. You know, if you think about our Vineland location, our Vineland location lives in consistent relationship with about 300 migrant farm workers from eight different countries in the world all the time. Living in relationship with these guys, throwing parties for these guys every month, domino, domino tournaments and cricket tournaments and cricket matches and uh, worship nights or whatever. This past summer, the Vineland community served 200 migrant farm workers in the medical clinic that we built in the basement as a way of protecting these guys' health care to protect their jobs, to protect their families. What an incredible thing. And while in for 10 years our church has been partnering with a ministry called Rose City Kids that it supports about 500 at-risk youth in weekly programs. But more recently we've been getting involved in a program in Welland called Harvest Kitchen. And Harvest Kitchen is about supplying, we supply about 60 to 80 meals uh, three weeks out of four every single month between November and March um, to those who would otherwise not necessarily be sure that they would have enough food to feed themselves or their family. We've, we've just started an initiative in Welland called the Collective Kitchen. 
where we're going to be working alongside low-income families uh, for $25. They can come in and prepare. We're going to prepare 250 meals a week together in community um, with low-income families. And for $25, they're going to walk away with 25 servings of food to help sustain their family in those seasons where rent and food, groceries begin to compete with each other. What an amazing gift. Of course, in St. Catharines, we've been at it the longest. Um, over the last 13 years, our shelter has prepared 425,000 meals. We've offered 150,000 nights sleep to 14,500 different individuals that we've, been in, that we've invited to become a part of our family, and many of them have. I mean, it's just amazing and beautiful the ways in which God is allowing us to give out of our plenty to people who have need. And yet, here's the whole thing. If that's where it stops, then we haven't yet fully realized the vision. Right? Because yes, we have plenty, but we also have need. That we need to have filled by the plenty that other people have. We, we just did this exercise a couple minutes ago um, with monopoly money. Where we realized the way that wealth is so inequitably distributed around the world. And, and quite frankly, we in these kinds of rooms who live in this culture have been given the plenty end of the stick. And yet truth be told, there are in other ways... There are ways that we are the ones who are living in poverty. We're the ones who are actually below the poverty line and need other people in their plenty to take care of us. Like some of us live spiritually below the poverty line precisely because we're the ones that have plenty. We've talked a couple times this fall about how wealth, that having money makes it harder to live a life of faith. Because it makes us self-sufficient. It, it makes us um, independent. It makes us feel like we don't need God. It makes us, it, it can strip us of joy and gratitude. There are ways that we live in poverty of being. Um, a brokenness in our relationship with ourselves, Because having money makes us think that we can do it all on ourselves, that we don't need anybody else. We kind of get a God complex or because we've been trained to believe that life is supposed to be comfortable and easy. When it isn't, we begin to beat up on ourselves and wonder what's wrong with us that God hasn't seen fit to love us and give us the things that we think we need. Many of us live in poverty of community where, again, because of our wealth, we actually don't believe that we need other people in our lives. And so we live lives of individualism or we live lives of transactionalism where we basically use each other to get what we need from each other. Or, or we, we live lives of brand management where we're trying to show the world that we have our act together too because we're keeping up with the Joneses as well. Our wealth can cause us to live below the poverty line in, in terms of our stewardship. 
We get caught up in the rat race, fall prey to workaholism and greed. Our priorities get out of whack. And we start to think that things like vacations are super important and renovations when they're really not, spiritually speaking. We, we can get our priorities all screwed up. And truth be told, some of the very people who, materially speaking, have more need than plenty in these kinds of areas actually have more plenty than need. That we actually need to learn from them how to live in our relationship with God or with ourselves or with each other or with the world, with our lives, because they have so much to give to us. They live lives of deep joy and gratitude and, and dependence on God where God is, God's provision is as plain and real as the nose on your face because you, you learn that God is all you need only when God is all you have. Or they, they know what it's like to, um, to be unconditionally loved by a God who will never leave them or forsake them or who know the freedom from guilt and shame because of the forgiveness that Jesus provides. They know what it is to be unconditionally loved and lovable. They, they know what it is to live in authentic, transparent community where their lives are open to each other and they're dependent on each other as a sign of strength and not a sign of weakness. They never get caught up in the rat race and so their priorities never get all screwed up and upside down like ours can. And what we need probably more than anything else is to enter into real relationships of mutuality with people who have less than us both locally and around the world so that they out of their plenty can fill our needs. How do we do that? How do we live these lives of mutuality? I'm going to suggest two things. One internal and one external. The first one is this. Um, I think relationships of mutuality require a posture of humility. We need a posture of humility. Right? If you think about Peter's story... The movement of Peter in the story was from this sense of superiority. I am one of God's chosen people. I am one of the few that God loves and lives in relationship with. And I of all people have something spiritually to offer to the world. He moves from that sense of superiority to the realization that he and Cornelius are far more similar than they are different. That Cornelius is every bit as devout and as spiritual and religious as he. And that Cornelius actually has something spiritual to offer to him. He becomes somebody who is humble enough to hear what God is teaching him through Cornelius. And that's a posture of humility. Kind of shedding this mindset that we in the West, because we have plenty of money and stuff, that we're the knight in shining armor riding in on our valiant steed to save the day because we have it figured out. That we're the developed ones and they're still developing as though we're the more evolved and advanced version of the species. And to realize that we're just as broken as everybody else and that we have so much to learn from people who have left less than us, precisely because they have less than us. 
And I think for some people, that idea is like blow your mind level novel. The idea that you need those who have less than you as much, maybe more than they need you. You just, you got to go back and wrestle with what does that mean for how I engage in serving others? I think for some people, like biblically, theoretically, it makes sense that that's probably true. But it just doesn't seem right in your spirit. You're just not totally convinced that that's actually the case. And the question for you is, how do you, how do you step out in faith in a way to discover the genuine, deep spiritual truth that that is? That you need them as much or more than they need you. I think there are some of us who are convinced that it's true, but who are afraid of what that means, what that looks like. Because to be perfectly honest, relationships of mutuality are a lot harder than charity. Charity is neat and clean. It is tidy, no fuss, no muss. You, have, you need, I have, I'll give it. Your life's better. I feel good about myself. Who wouldn't want the sort of sanitary f- feeling of goodness and self-righteousness that that provides? Mutuality doesn't work that way. Being in relationship with people doesn't work that way. It's messy and it's hard and it's frustrating to deal with other people's junk and they're having to deal with your junk and, um, and it's just harder. But what if you're there? What if you get it and you believe it and you want to experience it? How do we begin to reel that experience? Well, it takes a posture of humility, but more than that, Allison said this last week, it takes a move of proximity. A move of proximity. It means that wherever you are, in your relationship with serving people who have less than you locally and around the world, wherever you are, you have to take just one step closer. And whatever that step looks like depends entirely on where you currently are, right? So for some people, let's just be totally frank about this. I don't say this in a judgmental way, but there are some people in our community who haven't even taken step one of participating in charity. You're just not involved in any way. You're not involved even in financially giving out of your plenty to meet somebody else's deep need. And I would challenge you to say to move on that. Make the decision to become involved. At the very least, begin by giving out of your plenty into somebody else's needs. Start, if you can trust our community with your dollars, start giving to our community. Because more than 50 cents of every dollar that we receive goes to serve somebody who has less than us, right? Um, Give to other agencies, sponsor a child. If you have the means, support a child survival program and you can um, email Nate Dirks, ndirks at southridgechurch.ca. You can can get all the information you want about it. But take that first step of actually engaging in out of your plenty supplying somebody else's need. But that's not where it ends. Jesus, or he kind of criticizes the hypocritical religious leaders of his day 
at one point by saying to them, you guys do really well because you're very faithful to tithe, to give 10% of everything that God gives you to what God is doing in the world. But he says, but you've left undone the greater matters of justice and mercy and compassion. Giving isn't where it stops. Giving is where it starts. Then the more important work happens. So if you're in a place where you're giving, you're giving to the church, you're giving to a sponsored child or whatever, take a step forward and actually start serving. After the service, uh, you'll have the opportunity to go to the Welcome Center and to talk to people there about serving opportunities that you have to get involved in the anchor cause that uh, was right at your location, to serve the people that your location serves. If you're not currently involved in the ministry that's going on in your location, make the decision to begin to serve, to begin to do the tasks that are required for the ministry, the meal prep, the setting up chairs, the setting up for dominoes nights, whatever the case may be. But if you're not serving, make the decision to serve. If you're serving, make the decision to engage. Because doing tasks for the sake of the ministry is important. But that's still not the best thing. Your next step forward is to not just do the work behind the scenes, but to actually find ways to engage with the people that are being served at your location. Right? Or, you know, with your sponsored child, whether that's going beyond just giving once a month of $42 or whatever it is, uh, giving once a month to giving like Christmas presents, which you should have done months ago already or whatever, but giving birthday presents or just sending a picture of your family, writing a letter to say, hey, this is us. Like, take that one step towards engaging with them. Instead of just prepping a meal at the shelter at Harvest Kitchen, prep the meal and then eat with people. Like participate at the, if you're in St. Catharines, in rock climbing. If you're in Vineland, go to Domino's Nights. Like be a part of what's happening with the people that you're serving. If you're already there, the next step is a step of interaction. To not just play dominoes, but to initiate conversations, to ask questions, to learn somebody's story, to hear their heart, to hear about their heartbreaks, to hear about their victories, to discover who they really are, to learn to know them as a person which doesn't even necessarily happen at Domino's nights or over dinner at the shelter, but it could happen at Tim Hortons or in another environment where you, where you actually genuinely begin to interact with the human being who's a part of our ministry. And if you're already there, the last step is to forge a friendship. Where it's not just about learning about them and hearing their story and learning their heart and seeing what's in their soul. It's about you sharing what's going on with you and your story and what's in your heart and your heartaches and your victories and the things that you're hoping and dreaming and praying for right now. To begin the journey of instead of one serving the other, 
the journey of the two of you serving each other as you begin to walk together towards wholeness in Jesus. The kind of thing that doesn't even maybe happen at Tim Hortons, but happens in your home or in their home. As you learn to just to be friends and to live into that relationship of giving and receiving, not so that you can just more effectively meet their needs, which of course, the better you know somebody, the better positioned you are to walk with them well in their journey but to position them to walk with you well in your journey so that out of the plenty of their relationship with God, out of the plenty of their love that they're learning to have for themselves, out of the plenty of their experience of community, out of the plenty of their priority and stewardship of their life, they can give to you in your need. I'm just learning this. But in the last little while, I sat around in a circle of guys with a friend uh, of ours. Well, we're all friends in the circle, but a, friends of our, a friend of ours from the St. Catharines location, a guy named Tom, who years ago lived with us in St. Catharines and over the years has become friends with a good circle of us in the community. And in that circle, I'm not the best friend that Tom has. Others have been walking with Tom more closely for longer and investing in more deeply. But I'm just sharing with you my experience of learning the power of this. We were sitting together in a circle. We were talking with Tom about some next steps that we felt were facing him and his journey. And and he messaged us just this last week to say, hey guys, thanks for the conversation and I've taken some of the steps that we talked about and here's what's going to come up. And, and this is what he wrote. Tom says, I love you guys so much and I'm so humbled that you've chosen to invest so much in someone who keeps hurting you and messing up. I'm really sorry. Except for Kraus. Uh, he has no option but to love me uh, because of my work, presumably. Um, even if I mess up 365 days a year and become a lifer at the homeless shelter, he has no choice. It's unconditional love. But listen to this. This is how it ends. It's unconditional love. And I may just be the man who puts Mike in heaven. Tom has the sense that in our friendship, he has as much of the opportunity to shape who I'm becoming spiritually as I do for him. So I replied and I said this, Tom, I know that I have to say this because my stupid job forces me to love you. <laughs> but this makes my heart happy. I love you too. And I'm so thankful that God has brought you into my life because truth be told, you may actually be the one who gets me into heaven by teaching me so much about God's love and faithfulness. Imagine, I mean, I'm not saying I do this well. Imagine if we could all learn how to live in these kinds of relationships of mutuality so that our conversation when it comes to compassion and, and uh 
you know, our anchor causes and so on wasn't just about the way that God is using us to serve others, but it was a conversation about all the lives that are being changed precisely by the relationships that we have with people who have less than us, both here and around the world. That, my friends, is God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's, let's pray. God, I want to thank you that you have thrown all of us together in community with each other. I want to thank you for all of the differences that we have that mean that we all each have something unique to offer to each other. I thank you for the deep needs that we all carry, which means that we all have the opportunity to open ourselves up in humility and vulnerability and receive your love through each other in the community. Would you teach us, God, to leave charity behind in the name of experiencing the genuine mutuality, the give and take of your love being passed back and forth between us all. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.